Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Britta. Nice to see you. Great. And welcome, Teresa. Hi. Nice to see you. And of course, welcome, Anne Shumway Cook, to our interview. And to start off, you began PT school in 1965 in Indiana University. What made you want to become a physical therapist? I actually decided to become a physical therapist when I was about 12 or 13. Mm. So I was one of those people that identified early on. And part of it had to do with the fact that I actually grew up in a VA hospital. My father was chief of staff of the Cryle VA uh, Medical Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. And I grew up in the hospital initially and then on the grounds. And so was running around the hospital as I grew up and discovered the PT department. Mm. Met the PTs when I was about 12 or 13. They were incredibly gracious and kind to me. And then shortly after that, <clears throat> um, they had a student who was there doing an internship. And the faculty from Indiana University were there visiting that student. And I had the opportunity to meet the faculty from Indiana University, PT school, two of them, and decided in that moment, not only did I want to be a PT, I wanted to go to Indiana University. So there you go. By 13, it was like highly focused, knew what I wanted to do and where I wanted to do it. So there you go. So at that time, was it a bachelor's program and you entered directly into the program? Um, it was a bachelor's program. It was what they call a 2-2 program where you go for two years, mm -hmm. freshman and sophomore year, at sort of general classes in Bloomington, Indiana. And then you applied to the PT program and then moved to Indianapolis and spent two years getting your PT. So was your favorite class neurology? Um, I don't think that it was quite set up that way actually. Okay. I think that um, we were encouraged in PT school not to um, identify ourselves with any one aspect of PT. It was terribly important at that time to be a generalist. And so, even though at the time I was heading towards pediatric mm -hmm. physical therapy, um, we were really strongly discouraged from identifying that early on. Did they have clinicals or internships at that time? Um, yes, there was one eight-week internship between the junior and senior year, and then at the end you did three eight-week internships at the mm -hmm. end of your academics. Mm -hmm. so. Okay. So your first job was as, was as a physical therapist in, the, if I pronounce this right, Otago, New Zealand? I ended up moving to New Zealand about three months after I graduated. My absolutely first job was in um, Indiana mm -hmm. um, at a general hospital for just for three months, and then we moved to New Zealand. And so I worked in a hospital at uh, the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand, yes, for about 18 months. Mm -hmm. And then your, your, it seems like your early career focused on uh, treatment of children. Yes. That was your interest at that time. Mm -hmm. And so how, do you, um, how did these jobs with children shape your, your future career? Well, I think that, um, hmm, that's a good question. I had been interested in pediatrics for a long time and had the opportunity to practice in pediatrics. Um, but children grow up. Mm -hmm. And so then I began to realize that the lifespan was really more my interest, that um, I couldn't really understand 
children in pediatric physical therapy without actually understanding the spectrum of problems that children face when they actually grow up. So mm -hmm. um, I, I also feel like yeah. working in pediatrics helped me to understand some of the early factors that influence behavior when you're an adult, mm -hmm. even an elderly person. So, yeah. so did, you, did your work with children on balance and posture kind of direct your interest as an adult in that same area? I think that um, not directly, not the way you are thinking. Mm -hmm. I think your question has to do more with why did I specialize in balance and how right. did that happen? That's sort of what I'm feeling like your um, question really relates to. And I would say that um, my focus on balance really began when I started interacting with Lou Nashner, which was actually relatively late in the sense of um, before that I don't think that I was um, any more focused on balance than any other clinical physical therapist is. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all focused on balance and, and the relationship of balance to physical function. But my passion for balance started really when I started in um, doing research with Lou and I realized just how little I really understood this construct. And then it was like, holy smokes. Um, I really thought I understood what balance was all about and thought I was doing a pretty good job in the clinic evaluating it and treating it and realized that my concept of balance was, was not adequate. So. so what was Lou working on at that time and what did you work on in his lab? Um, he was doing research on normal balance control, normal posture control, um, using a moving platform paradigm to study postural uh, reactive balance in, in normal people. So Lou was primarily working with normal people. And when I came along, I think he was interested because I was working with patient populations, in particular children with cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, I had a very specific research question in mind when we started, which was when I first talked to him, went down to visit his lab, which was, um, I want to look at the effect of inhibitive casts on balance control in children with cerebral palsy, stance balance control. And he said, well, what do we know about balance control in children with cerebral palsy who aren't in casts? And I said, well, I'm a PT. I know all about balance in children with CP and not a cast. And he said, well, why don't we just test some of those assumptions. <laughs> and so we started the study with a grant from the Foundation for PT. And without them, thank you Foundation for PT, um, uh, we started the study. And basically this little three-month study that I started with Lou, every assumption I had about balance in children with CP was not upheld by this research. And it really mm. absolutely threw me for a loop. And I thought about getting out of the profession, frankly, um, mm. because at that point it's like, wow, I don't know what to do now. And Lou fortunately said, why don't you just stay and we'll see if we can sort this out. And so, um, and I did. And so I've that stayed was, ever since. That was your transition from clinic to research. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you know what's interesting to me, because um, you graduated in 1969, I graduated in 1978. So one of the things that I want to discuss with you is how together we've seen our profession evolve from what it was like to go to PT school then 
and I'm like on your coattails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and, and kind of want to reflect on how different it is today and how we got here because that's I think a, such an important part of how we've all evolved to where we are today and and so I guess I want to have you maybe describe what you what physical therapy school was like for you and and then I I can kind of compare what it was like for me I imagine it was very very similar and then um, well, I don't think it will be similar. Okay, well, I think then, then you're going to find that there were significant differences in the ten years since I graduated, but maybe not. Uh, and this will be interesting because we mm -hmm. had three. When did three step happen compared to your graduation? I mean, sorry, um, new, new, step, new, step. new step. You're talking about new step. Yeah. So new step had happened in about um, I think sixty six, and so we had actually the new step proceedings. Okay. In That's our curriculum. Okay. So, so. Um, two things jump to mind in right. terms of what might have been different, um, certainly what's different then when I went to PD school and what's different now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about when you were yeah. 10 years later. So uh, one of them is very just mundane and that's the difference mm -hmm. in uniforms. When I, went oh, to yeah. school, <laughs> when I went to PT school, we had to wear uniforms as did all the medical students and everyone else. Our mm -hmm. uniform was a blue skirt, wraparound skirt, with blue shorts underneath, a white blouse, a white halter, and um, that's what we were required to wear every day. Did you have a patch on your arm? Yep. <laughs> what, did, what did men wear? Um, they wore blue pants and white shirts and then they had blue shorts as well. So it was very standardized and you had to wear those things. So and this, this is was back when nurses wore the hats. Yep. Well, and when I graduated from PT school, I had to wear a white uniform. No pants were allowed when I graduated from PT school in 1969. I had to wear a white dress, white stockings, and white shoes. So the only thing that distinguished me from a nurse was I didn't wear a cap. And it was a big deal when PTs were allowed to wear white pants, not just a white skirt. This was giant in our thing. It was like, holy smokes, we can wear pants. So that's one of the differences. So, mm -hmm. so when you went to PT school, did you have to wear a uniform? We wore a uniform, but oh. we got to wear blue pants <laughs> with a white top. And we all had to have our APTA patch, patch on. on the three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same here. Same here. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that was That's one fun. difference. So <laughs> nowadays, yeah, there's no uniform code in P PT ah. school. So, but I do think, speaking of New Step, I think that um, what we use as evidence for practice has changed considerably. And as I think about it, I think that's probably one of the most significant changes that has happened in our profession. Not sometimes for the good and sometimes not for the good. So um, when I went to PT school, evidence was based on um, professional opinion of people who were well respected in the field. So the Berta Bobath, Margaret mm -hmm. Rood, um, Sydney, Sydney Brunstrom, mm -hmm. the fact that these people had said this type of therapy works and is appropriate was sufficient evidence for us to go ahead and base our practice on that. So the opinion of respected clinicians was sufficient evidence, and that's what we were taught. 
Now, I, I want to add something to that. I also have been told, I was at Northwestern as a junior faculty, and so there's a lot of um, Maggie not and um, PNF. Yeah, yeah, PNF there a lot. And there was a lot of rivalry between these people. Yeah. And this, which is interesting because I think this, they were experts, but they also had a little bit of rivalry between them. So there were camps, which ended up creating these approaches that I do think influenced our profession. And so maybe you could be thinking about that in your answer too, is how, how did Newstep, it, it created a kind of a neurophysiologic approach to physical therapy, which was good. But then there were also these approaches that emerged from that, that brought us from post-polio era into this neuroscience area, if you will. Yes, and I, I think that we, um, I think that that's always the case when personal opinion is the only foundation we have for evidence, yeah. because then we can become sort of disciples of a particular person's opinion, and that's the downside of it, and um, and that's true nowadays as well as it is mm -hmm. just as much as it was 40 years ago when I first began to practice. But um, I, I do think that you have a good point. So even the amount of time that was spent within my curriculum on these different approaches varied depending upon who was teaching and what their particular favorite was. I happened to have someone who was a Mar uh, Margaret Rood fanatic. And so, boy, we were trained in Mar Margaret Rood's approach and we got other things, a little bit of PNF and things like that. But so, um, so nowadays, as we think about what constitutes evidence in our practice, I sort of feel like we have um, shifted from professional judgment and opinion of people who are well experienced to the opposite end, which is allowing research, even good research, to be the, the, the most heavily weighted evidence related to our practice. And, and I think that probably the reality is somewhere in between. I think that good research is integrated with good sound professional judgment based on experience and, as David Sack had said, and patient preference. And that's what constitutes evidence in our individual practice. So, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think um, it's, you watch these pendulums swing, don't mm -hmm. you? <laughs> um, so in that time, there was new step. Then there was two step, and I, I, you know, I was went to that. And now, you know, I've been in my career for a little over ten years, I think. And what I recall from from that time that to me was a kind of a paradigm push. <laughs> I don't know if it was a full shift, but, but it focused on three areas that really did influence curriculum for physical therapists. And this is where your work and Faye's work and everyone's work started to make some sense to me and Carolee's. Um, it focused on three things, motor control, motor learning, and motor development. And I, I really think that was a pivotal moment in curriculum change because we began to shift. and so. Do you appreciate that your work helped us make that shift? I think that uh, many people's work did. So I'm not trying to be falsely humble regarding my, the contribution of my own work. I have sure. been fortunate to collaborate with a lot of people and I understand that um, the work that I published with and around others has been pivotal in the direction of the 
of the profession. Um, I also feel like um, we stand on the shoulders of other people. And I, I find it particularly interesting um, that I think that in our sometimes we are quick nowadays to dismiss the early neurofacilitation um, techniques, for example. And yet, think about it. These people, whether it's Rude or Bobath or Brunstrom, they were the first ones to say, you know, I believe that therapy can actually impact the nervous system. I believe we can actually modify the mammalian nervous system, if you will, and make changes. We don't have to just go the compensation route. And here we are, 50 years later, 40 years later, and the hot area right now is activity-dependent neuroplasticity. So all that's happened is we have, have confirmed something <clears throat> that they felt through their personal experience in the clinic. So I think it's important to remember that, that those people, those early therapists, were some of the first ones in the absence of all of this research that we currently use to justify activity-dependent neuroplasticity, were saying, I believe there's activity-dependent nervous system modification going on. And so um, many of us who followed, whether it's Faye or myself or whoever, um, just went on the assumption we could modify the nervous system. This is like an enormous shift in perception. It never occurred to me that I couldn't modify the nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, and I have largely, so, so anyway, I think that I think that's critical because uh, another example is, and it kind of gets into why we're looking at imaging now and and the importance of that maybe for the future is if you if you look at Brunstrom and the Fuglemeyer, and you need to understand that in terms of feuds, and Shumway Cook and I continuously feud <laughs> over the value of the Fuglemeyer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. What is very interesting to me is that the Fugelmeyer is a reliable and valid measure of, of this selectivity that Brunstrom had described based upon her observations. And now, realizing that in fact, her observations correlate with the amount of white matter tract damage in the corticospinal tract. And that actually the Fugelmeyer score then is, is her observations are now confirmed by this imaging. and. Um, so it's amazing to me that you take motor learning, for example, it's a, another example of behavior, all those psychologists, so Carol Lee with you know, Dick Schmidt bringing in the observations that from a psychological perspective, again, no, no confirmation that you could see learning, but that you could observe these changes in behavior are now being confirmed with neuroimaging. neuroimaging. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think what you say is very important and I, I really, want to reinforce as maybe we turn of a question to the next generation of, you know, it's coming full circle, isn't it? And physical therapists observe behavior, they're trying to change function, and finally actually the scientists are catching up with us. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'd go that just, far, Kathy. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it's a collaborative process. I Absolutely. do. It's I iterative. It's a, yeah. and, and the other thing is, Yes, it is an iterative process. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I think it's important not to, as they say, throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm -hmm. that to bring forward what we find most helpful rather than discard it or discount it or um, even worse, demonize it. Um, 
that, mm. and by that I mean just, you know, really discount it so that we are pejorative in our thinking. Well, you do this and you're wrong. So, mm -hmm. and you're a bad therapist because of it. It's like, I think it's an iterative process and we need to just move forward, bringing forward those concepts that we feel are helpful and beneficial to our patients and allow others that may not be quite so helpful to either fall to the side or go into a resting state until we discover 20 years later that, gee, they actually are relevant. So there you go. Well, and, and just a follow-up on that one point, and then I'll, um, absolutely, the other day there was a session on knowledge translation, and it was a beautiful thing, actually, to see today in the presentation that you were at, the, the sharing of feedback between clinicians and scientists and trying to understand how yeah. things work. I mean, we need to do more of that, I think. Well, the, the other thing that I would just say, not, not to change the subject, but that I do feel has really changed in PT, fun, fundamentally something that has really changed, and that is, and again, it may, it's both good and bad. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I think for the most part it's good. And that is, it has to do with this issue of opinion um, and what we use as evidence. When I graduated from PT school, and really in the first 20, 30 years of my practice, the fact that I said my therapy was effective was sufficient evidence to get reimbursed. Mm. And so PT did not have to prove its efficacy. It did not. My opinion as a professional was sufficient in order to get fee-for-service. And now it's not enough. Now we have to show outcomes in relationship to our performance as um, in, in those interactions with a, a patient. And I think that that is important. It's very important. It does make it difficult because then we have to make decisions about what are the relevant outcomes that we should in fact be measuring. But I do believe one of the big changes in the profession has gone from um, PT works because I say it works to show me the money, as they say. So, You received Excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I wanted to, um, you alluded to a little bit what um, the main question that I wanted to get at. So um, last year, the neurology section um, developed the Anne Shumway Cook Lectureship, Translating Evidence into Practice. And we had a wonderful conversation about, me and you and Kathy, about your resistance to having that named after you. And you alluded to the uh, your what you talked about then a bit then uh, about nobody is alone stand on the shoulders of giants and collaborative but um, I wanted you to have the opportunity to have a re your response your thoughts related to this um, because you made really beautiful points I think and I I still my vote would still be to keep it named the Anne Shumway Cook Lectureship, but um, because, because as Kathy said, your work has become synonymous, your name, I mean, has become synonymous with this concept. And I speak as somebody who did not know you personally, so I graduated in 1994, so yet another step. Another generation. And, <laughs> and in a large part due to your your book um, and, and, and your work, that it is as though um, your name is no longer just the thing that your parents gave you. It, it, it is associated with this other thing. And that must be an awesome 
feeling to think that that might be true. So that is what I want um, to just have you comment on and, and, and have it recorded related to what your thoughts are about having something named after you. Um, well, I'm ambivalent. On the one hand, I'm thrilled and delighted that you named a lectureship after me. Who wouldn't be, for heaven's sakes? It's like I've been in the field for over 40 years. It's like it's an incredible honor to have um, something named after you, particularly something for which you honestly believe your whole profession. My, the goal of myself in a professional role is related to that. Um, that translation of research and, and helping therapists to understand the relevance of research to their everyday practice. I am a passionate proponent of that, as you know. Um, and the give and take between research and researchers and clinicians, the importance of that. Um, so, of course, I am incredibly grateful and honored that this would happen. Why do I feel that it should not be named after me? And I continue to feel it should not be named after me. And all I can say is the same thing I said last year. We honor a path, not the person. So I believe the name of the lectureship should be Neurology Section, Translating Research into Practice Lectureship. And we honor those people who are committed to the same thing I am, which is translating research into clinical practice. Every one of us is, as a therapist, that's my experience, is all clinicians are, in fact, desperately trying to improve patient care any way they can. That's one of the things that unites us as a profession, which is why I'm proud to be part of this profession. That said, there are so many people who are <coughs> um, leaders in the field of translating research, doing their best to translate research into practice. And I, b I believe that it's important to honor the path, not the individual. And so, and, and I still feel that way. So um, I do, I feel that way. I believe that the, that, that the emphasis on an individual actually detracts from the emphasis on what it is we are celebrating, which is therapists' commitment to translating research into their practice. And there are many people that do it. So I still believe strongly that it should not have a name attached to it. And that's not just my name, it could be any name, I would say. So I, I, I do understand what you're saying. And, um, and I remember walking with you at um, Three Step, and I assumed that Dr. Ann Shumway Cook, known for her translation, was a fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association. Now there's an individual honor in the neurology section, I found that she wasn't. And the neurology sponsored you mm -hmm. to be a fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association. Now, what did that mean to you when you were nominated and then awarded a, a fellowship as a Catherine Worthingham Fellow? What did that mean to you? Because that's an individual thing. You, yes, and you're not going to give that back, are you? Oh, no. Okay, of course right, not. Just of course not. <laughs> I, um, I was very honored. For a starter, I, I was really honored to be chosen as a Catherine Worthingham Fellow. There's no question about it. But I will tell you something truthfully. Maybe that honor doesn't mean as much to me as it might to other people. I'm honored to be in this profession. 
and that is sufficient for me. That's what you're not getting. I am part of a community of people that have supported me for over 40 years. And if I could say anything to therapists that are coming into the profession, it's that it's the sense of the fact that we are a community of people that are unified by our passion and compassion for patient care. And I am so proud to be part of this community. And that's what has supported me over the years, truly, more than any, any way I could possibly express is the, is the uh, support that I have gotten and the sense of community. So do you have a mentor, or did you have a mentor? Absolutely, I had mentors. Um, I'm a strong proponent of mentors and collaborators. I believe that we do um, learn much more by um, who we are fortunate to collaborate with. And um, one of the first, obviously, was Lou Nashner. He's not no. a PT, but no. he was a person who mentored me in terms of research. Marjorie Woolacott would have been a second person who was probably incredibly um, terribly influential, also not a PT, but helping me to understand the application of research to clinical practice. Both of those people were really, really instrumental for me. My, the collaborations I've had with Faye Horak really helped. Um, mm -hmm. The interactions and collaboration, though he did not, um, we never shared research, were my father. And my father was a physician and one of his last talks he gave, um, I have a quote from his last talk, at his retirement talk that I have in, had in my office. And he said, um, and, and I feel it epitomizes PT, frankly, I do. He said, uh, for man cannot live by scientific truth alone. It will always be relative, but a compassionate heart is the final and only absolute. And I believe that that's what physical therapy stands for. The science of physical therapy will change. What is unchanging in our profession is the compassionate heart and passion we bring to patient care. Wow. I know. Bring the, bring, bring the tissues, everybody. <laughs> Do I feel strongly about that? <laughs> it came across. I, I, yeah, I have another wonderful. question. Sure. Um, paradigm shift. Yeah. Uh, how, what kind of advice there, what 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 resources do you have to call upon within in order to lead um, a paradigm shift within a school of thought? Because you you have done that throughout your career. You have led people to change the way they think, and that is not an easy thing to do. It is it is easy to to continue to do what we have always done. It is easy to to make a, um, a contribution and sort of let it sit there. Um, what, it, what kind of advice could you give um, burgeoning researchers, mm -hmm. clinicians? I think, um I think one of the most important things for me in terms of um, a willingness to change um, th that is ultimately at the heart of your question. How willing are you to change? 
And though we say we're willing to change, it's very, in fact, hard to change. And partly, I believe, that one of the most difficult things is finding out you're wrong. And so our ego is attached to being right. Our ego is attached to, be, to knowing what we're doing. And it's very disconcerting to find out that we don't or that we, in fact, might in, even be wrong. And so I think the most important thing to um, personal characteristic related to um, paradigm shifts is one, the recognition that um, change is necessary and not to be ego attached to a specific thing. And that's true whether you're a therapist and your ego attached to um, a particular type of therapy or you're a researcher who is ego attached to a particular hypothesis. You have to be willing to be wrong in order to move ahead. And so, and, and that's a very hard thing, I think, for all of us, is to um, recognize the need for change and the fact that change is uncomfortable and I might have to live through a certain level of discomfort before I can find my way out. So, did that answer your question? So you made the change from being a, primarily a clinician to primarily a researcher, and I believe it started with your research with Lou Nashner. Did you meet Marjorie Woolicott shortly after that, or how did that relationship begin? I actually met Marjorie in Lou's lab. So oh. Marjorie, and she wasn't actually, well, she was working with Lou, but she was a postdoc in um, working with a scientist who was at the Neurological Sciences Institute where Lou was. And so we met while I came to work with Lou and Marjorie was just finishing up her postdoc. And we, as you often do with people, there's some people that you just click with. Mm -hmm. And I knew, we knew right away that we were going to be friends. The very first day, I'll tell you just a funny story. Um, the very first day I met her, we decided to go out to lunch together. And so we walked outside and we were going to get to, into her car. And she opened up the trunk of her car to put something in it. And there was the book, um, Edna St. Vincent Millay's poetry book, which is, happens to be one of my favorite poets. Mm -hmm. And she and I looked at it, I looked at her, I said, do you like Ed? Oh, she said, I, really, m my favorite poetress is Edna St. Vincent Millay. And, and my favorite poem within that is, of course, her very famous Millennium poem. And it was like, in that moment, we sort of looked at one another and thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we started collaborating together and became friends, of course, ever since. So, so did you have uh, uh, any major, I want to say theological differences, but that's probably not the right word. Did, did you have any times that you felt that your, your collaborative processes should go in a different direction or that you had differences in opinion about something you were investigating? Um, well, I've collaborated with a lot of people over time, and mm -hmm. there have been a lot of disagreements during that course of time. Not so much about, it, more, it has much more to do with interpretation of mm -hmm. information, um, how one interprets information, and whether it's in a research project or in a particular patient. There are disagreements about how one interprets information, and um, so and that's a difficult thing to work out. Mm -hmm. um, it is, whether it's, um, it, it just is a difficult. So um, I'm fortunate that I've collaborated with a lot of different people and um, I've been able to sort of follow my own course as far as 
uh, what my interests have been. So um, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but. Sure. I have just a, just curious about, when you think back on your career, what's a, a moment or a few moments that just kind of make you smile? Um, anything, with students oh. or patients or anything? Oh. Um, there, there are several moments. Um, I know one very, very memorable moment that I had. One was actually attending my very first APTA meeting, which was when I was a PT student. And walking in, I can't even remember where the meeting was, and realizing, my God, this is a much bigger profession than I thought. <laughs> Dang, there's people here from all over the United States. It was like I suddenly had a sense of, and, and that sense was a sense of joy about, wow, there's a lot of people that are really interested in the same things I mm -hmm. am. And the same thing happened to me, the same aha, when I went to my first World Congress meeting. And then it was like, holy smokes, it's not only in the United States, it's all over the world. And that still happens to me. So I'm doing a lot of teaching overseas now. And what I've realized is that PTs are PTs worldwide. There is something really amazing about this, this organization of people. They are. So that's one, is the sense of connectedness I feel and felt with this profession. And there were specific moments in my career when I really felt that connection. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, um, and it's not just one, there were two particular patients in particular that I remember um, feeling this. In, when a patient said to me, when we started working together, and she looked at me, she happened to be an older woman, and she said, you know, you have given me so much hope, so much hope that I can be better than I am. And I remember thinking that in that moment, I have more to offer my patients than just a good exercise program. <laughs> <laughs> I might be actually giving them a lot more than just that. And, um, and that's actually been echoed by quite a few patients. And I, I don't underestimate the importance of that. And, you know, and therein is an interesting point of how I see you kind of shifting in th these past few years in your career is and I've it, it's and that's one I think one of the universal things about physical therapists they bring hope to people mm -hmm. which is hard to support with evidence it's it's like I, I say to my residents sometimes we're physical therapists and I think that therapy part the the um, the things that you've been talking about about the the other factors mm -hmm. that affect outcome how are we going to incorporate that into kind of the future of physical therapy and, and, and maybe that into how do you see, where do you see our profession going from this point? Well, I, I just, I will play a little devil's advocate here, Kathy. Okay. So um, it is true that I believe that um, there are many things that I, I bring to a therapy situation, but if I can't change physical function, that's what I'm being paid to do. And so I think that it is important to realize that if all I did was just give that patient hope but didn't change their function, then 
I haven't done my job. Correct. So that's the physical part where the exactly. science evidence comes in. Exactly. And so um, that's where the issue of, that's why I actually love the APTAs, um, you know, whatever that little saying is, the science of healing and the art of caring, I believe absolutely perfectly captures our profession. Um, and I say that to this, my students all the time. Art of caring is a, an essential component of what we do, but the science of healing is equally important. So you can be as compassionate as you want, but if you are not skilled at what you do, you're not going to get the outcome. On the other hand, skill without compassion is a, it's a bitter pill to swallow. So I believe mm -hmm. that both are necessary and we need to be training and doing more to help both students and therapists value both. That's really excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to go a little bit um, because my personal interest in is vestibular rehabilitation. And you, you've dabbled in a lot of different areas, but what brought you to vestibular rehab? Um, again, it was um, a collaboration. I knew nothing about vestibular rehab, nothing. And when I went to Lou's lab to work, I met Owen Black, who was a neurootologist. Mm -hmm. And Lou, uh, I mean, uh, Owen came to Lou's lab in order to look at the effect of vestibular dysfunction on posture control. And at the time, there was, there was a fair amount, not a fair amount, of, there was some vestibular uh, treatment going on in Europe, but virtually nothing right. really in this country. Yeah, because that was back in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, Owen believed that exercise could, in fact, make his patients better. And so he said, I want to start sending you patients, Anne. I had never seen vestibular patients. And it was like, okay, well, send them. I'll, I'll try and figure it out as I go. And so he started referring patients, and we started evaluating patients, and then trying different types of therapies, and looking, reading the literature to see what existed, and, um, and having success and beginning to try to formulate a sort of a, a comprehensive approach to managing patients' symptoms in mm -hmm. patients with different types of vestibular problems. And so it really just evolved that way. And then once we began to have success and we started doing, um, we decided to try and formalize it and teach it a little bit to other therapists so that they would know. And so then Faye and I started teaching courses in, in the beginning. but. Really, it was, however, I will have to say, once I started working with the neurotology for the uh, vestibular patients, I was actually, my primary practice was traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. So young adults with traumatic brain injury. And I suddenly realized the percentage of my patients <laughs> who were in fact <laughs> presenting with symptoms that mm. were very reminiscent of the vestibular problems. And so I suddenly realized the absolute relevance of what I was doing in those patients. And then the expansion to that, realizing that it's applicable to geriatrics and all kinds of things. So, yeah, but that's how it got started, is through my collaboration with Owen Black. So what types of tests and measures were you using for the patients at that time? There were none. We, didn't, we, we really didn't <laughs> Or did have you any. develop? We developed. I mean, that, that's <clears> how <throat> the dynamic gait index, for example, got formed, is mm -hmm. because I realized that just doing um, a simple, usual pace gait wasn't um, that my, m most of my patients could do that, that had even significant vestibular problems. And it was like, hmm, this isn't going to work. And then, but yet 
if they turned to look at somebody coming out, they were like all over staggering. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I thought, hmm, maybe in addition to ask them to walk a straight line, I might ask them to walk and turn their head from side to side. It was like, wow, look at the people who are unsteady. And then it was like, hmm. Well, patients with benign proxismal positional vertigo have problems in vertical canals. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I should ask them also to look up and down. Ooh, that made some people unsteady. So mm -hmm. the dynamic gait index emerged from observation of the conditions under which patients have problems and then codifying that and standardizing it. So we created, the same is true for the CATSIM test, mm -hmm. recognizing that many patients were complaining of imbalance under contexts and conditions in which sensory information was altered and yet we had no current test for that. And so then thinking about mm -hmm. how we might standardize an, an approach. So most of the things that that I have created have come from clinical observations of patients and the conditions under which. So I'm a big proponent of observation. Just like Rude and full yeah, bath and exactly. see. <laughs> so um, I I remember the days when we did put the um, dome. the oh, dome over yeah. the head. What was that? The Chinese the lantern. Yeah, the yeah, Chinese yeah. lantern <laughs> over the head. I probably there's one still under a mat somewhere. Uh, so did your work there influence Lou Nashner in terms of developing the Equitest? Actually, Lou influenced us. How about so that? yeah, it's the other way around. So Lou had developed not the Equitest, but the laboratory version of the Equitest. Mm -hmm. And so for his research at MIT, looking at the effect of, um, looking at the role of the vestibular system in stance posture control. And so Lou and I used to joke all the time about the fact that he is a, uh, has his PhD, a doctorate in science from MIT, he's a high tech person. You're talking to a low-tech person. You're mm -hmm. talking about the lowest tech person you will ever meet is probably me. I barely manage my iPhone, which was just forced on me. So <laughs> I am a low-tech person. So I came out with the foam and dome because it was the low-tech version of this very sophisticated mm -hmm. high-tech piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be sort of a... Um, a hallmark of who I am is a generation of a low-tech um, version of things because that suits who I am. Well, it's part of that clinic, excuse me, research to clinic. Well, but even more than that, it's part of a therapist preference. So there are therapists who have a preference just like our patients do. There are some patients who mm -hmm. are into gadgets and they love gadgets. Mm -hmm. and you put them on a balance master and, and they just love that stuff. And there are other patients who are not gadget oriented mm -hmm. and then putting them on a balance master is not the right thing to do. So I think we have to be uh, less driven by the equipment and more driven by patient preference and mm -hmm. understanding mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so yes. Did, was the dynamic visual acuity test around then? No. No? I mean, it was as a um, um, strictly laboratory test. Okay. I mean, like the VOR. Right. Um, but was there a clinical version of that? And the answer is no. no. So those things were developed as more and more clinicians learned that they needed to know the information, didn't have the sophisticated equipment to develop it. And so that whole thing what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. what happens. And so that's a part of the iterative process of the development in the field. So 
So this is kind of, I, I think sometimes we like to um, rub each other just to get a little <laughs> bit of <laughs> discussion going. But so I think this is very interesting that you just said that point. So you started with high-tech equipment to create these quantification of very important information that we learned about the nervous system. So they're kind of principles, if you will, that are supported now in this evidence. And then they get translated into something that's ecologically valid in the clinic. So this therapist can, you know, translate that information and, and do it wherever they are in the world. But I think that the key here is the issue of the relevance of that information to guide my practice. So that may be, I, I don't integrate, um, something has to be significantly important in clinical decision making for me to integrate it. So why would I include the foam and dome, for example, in my clinical evaluation, is the recognition that the uh, patient's behavior in that test dictates some aspect of my treatment. And that's what, be, for me, becomes the acid test for whether or not I'm going to move something from a research, which is a largely theoretical question about how the nervous system works, into my clinical practice, which is, do I need this information to make informed decisions about how to tr best treat my patient? If it didn't, then it's not likely to make its way into my practice. And, and that, I think, is where my, a little bit of my concern today is in the clinical trials that are, are looking at how we test effectiveness of interventions, <clears throat> I think is really problematic. And you, and maybe you could speak to this, is what is the value of rehabilitation clinical trials? And what is the, the cautionary tale of, of rehabilitation clinical trials, of where we are now? Because I think when I, what I get concerned is when therapists generalize too much, um, maybe they're not, maybe thinking about those judgments you're talking about. I, I, I don't know I'm, if I'm articulating right, but I, I, I think we'd be cautious about the evidence to practice translation. Well, I think, Kathy, yeah, I, I think my response would be uh, clinical trials are never going to give us all the information we need to make decisions about how to treat patients. And so that's, that's my feeling is that, and I um, am always fond of quoting an, that, that paper by Mant um, from Lancet, uh, the journal Lancet, where he said um, RCTs or clinical trials are the best way to determine whether an intervention is effective, but arguably the worst way to determine who will benefit. And so as a clinician, I need to know, is this intervention effective, at least at a population level? But as a clinician, I'm sitting across from a specific patient. And I need to know what is the best intervention for that particular patient, given that particular patient's um, constellation of problems and issues. And so um, RCTs, I think, are provide essential information to us, but they are not going to be able to provide all the information that we need to make informed decisions as clinicians. I have a final question. What are you looking forward to um, observing in the profession in the next number of years 
you know, what what do you see on the horizon that you that you think was exciting or probably in terms of neuro rehab I think an expansion and better understanding of activity dependent neuroplasticity um, trying to understand truly understand the factors that we need to know that are um, driving neuro or activity dependent neuroplasticity and then optimizing function at the same time so I think we are beginning to get hints about certain things but there's so much we don't know in order to translate that inf inner, uh, that information into um, uh, guidelines for practice so there's still this enormous gulf and I'm hoping and looking forward to um, the research that's going to come that's going to help us sort some of those issues out the relative importance of intensity um, repetition or context or some of these other factors I think that th we're still too far away from having um, the specific understanding of how to apply to an individual patient and that's the area I'm looking forward to most you've done quite a bit of lecturing and uh, especially internationally now and I, I was looking through your resume and uh, saw that you did a lecture in Limerick, Ireland on patient compliance in uh, home exercise programs. No, I missed that lecture. So what, what do you have as advice for those who have patients that have challenges in this area? Um, well, since I just gave that talk at okay. the, the Another CSM. benefit of CSM, yes. <laughs> I just finished that talk. I think that, um, that we need to pay as much attention in our research paradigms to understanding factors that influence adherence and how complex those factors are. So we spend so much time looking at which um, intervention is more effective or less effective or comparably effective to other interventions without spending sufficient time understanding the factors that will determine whether the patient actually does the intervention. And so um, I think that that is something that we really need to address, particularly because the research shows that even the best interventions, adherence rates are less than 50%, so in PT. And so it's like we need to spend equal time to understanding the factors that determine whether a patient will in fact adopt or adhere to an exercise program or a, a therapeutic program what, regardless of what it is. In terms of what are some of those factors I think that probably what I'm beginning to realize is just how complex those factors are. That they go well beyond the, there are many complex factors within the individual. Age, socioeconomics, education level, income level, disease severity, all kinds of things patients perceptions to a large extent will drive whether or not they'll even show up at your door for physical mm -hmm. therapy let alone stay in your door and continue or continue with a program afterwards so things like their perceive their perceptions regarding their capacity to do the program self-efficacy their expectations regarding the whether they're not they're gonna the program itself will causally link to the outcomes they want um, which is outcomes expectation and barriers. The barriers seem to be much more important than motivators in determining whether a patient will adhere. But there are also um, other factors, contextual factors, that have an enormous impact that we are not taking into consideration that affect adherence to exercise or therapeutic 
um, activities. We often think about the environment, for example, and we as therapists often look at the environment to see how it supports function. So does the patient have grab bars in the bathroom? Does it, you know, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Are we looking at the built environment relative to supporting functional independence, but we don't look at the environment to say, how will this environment support or be a barrier to a, my, the patient's ability to carry out the program I want them to do at home? And given the fact that we know practice and repetition is critical to improvements in function, making sure that the environment supports the program that we want the patient to do is going to be a very important part. And I think we know very little about factors that influence adherence and the complexity and interaction. So one last comment related to that. There's emerging research also to show that the factors that determine adherence early on to a program are not the factors that determine long-term adherence to a program, and so we need to be aware of that. We're not teaching patients to do therapeutic activities for a period of four weeks or six weeks or 12 weeks. We're teaching them to do exercises and activities for life. And so mm -hmm. we need to be thinking in terms of what factors Im impact. So if mm -hmm. I were staying in the profession in terms of research, one of the big areas I probably would move into is actually adherence and factors that influence adherence. And so. Well, and, and you know, I think that that uh, is a very important point and it has to do with like finding what is that factor that that is meaningful to the patient mm -hmm. and and one of the things that I think I'm starting to realize is the absolute tremendous impact that a person with a disability has on the people in their family mm -hmm. and that sometimes is the motivator mm -hmm. And, and I think we're looking so, we're like looking at the person, this patient, quote unquote, but finding out how we can make their life easier in their reality, context. Yeah. their context, mm -hmm. exactly. I think is just so Important. critical. And um, yeah, I yeah. would agree. Yep. So you've been a member of the APTA since you were a student, right? And you've remained a member Retention's not an issue with you. <laughs> what uh, what could you say to someone the importance about being a member of the professional association? Um, on many levels, I believe it's important. And um, I, I do believe that it is important for all of us to belong to the professional organization. I think for a starter, it helps us understand that we are in fact a community of people that are united in mm -hmm. a common goal. And it's good to be reminded of that. Um, when we're alone practicing in our clinics or our individual practice, you can feel somewhat isolated. And it's important to step back and remember that you are actually part of a larger community. And that community can support you and help you if you will let it. And joining the APTA has, has at least for me, done that. And so I believe that. It's also a source of um, continuing education and uh, lifelong learning. So it's, um, you can try to do this on your own by reading journals and things like that, but nothing replaces coming face to face and talking to people and sharing ideas and exchanging mm -hmm. information and rubbing up against people that don't necessarily <laughs> agree with and exchanging mm -hmm. ideas and broadening your perspective. And I think um, 
Jonathan Haidt, who is an author of the book Happiness Hypothesis, one of the things he said, I just heard an interview, and I really thought about it. He said, look, we don't learn to broaden our opinions in isolation, nor do we learn to broaden our opinions by hanging out with people who think just like us. <laughs> <laughs> so true. The only way we broaden our opinions and move forward is when we interact with one another particularly the one and others that don't necessarily see the way we do, providing we approach it with a feeling of mutual respect and appreciation. And mm -hmm. so I think it's very important that we come together as an organization and have an, a forum, an opportunity to exchange ideas and disagreements and, and still walk away and have a glass of wine together. That's right. Can you think of a time you came to a meeting and walked away with a new idea or direction? I can't think of a meeting where that hasn't happened. So there you go. <laughs> I've never been to a C I haven't missed a CSM in probably 30 years. And I've mm -hmm. always come away with a bazillion ideas, both clinical for clinical practice as well as research. Excellent. Um, you were also the first co-president of the Balance and Falls SIG. <laughs> okay, how did they rope you into that? <laughs> oh my God, I have no I believe it was you. No, no. You tell you how you got to start it. And I'll remember the first the first thing you did to me in a direct conversation after I became president was linked to I the don't sick. remember. See, I'll, I'll remind you. It's one of those things that I have a passion for. I had a passion for, obviously, Balance and Falls. And I didn't feel that it was... Um, it was being adequately addressed in any mm -hmm. of the sections. Mm -hmm. And so when they came to me with the idea of the uh, joint balance and falls SIG between geriatrics and neuro, I was more than willing to do it because I felt strongly that um, that the we as a profession, but the organization itself, was not addressing this, this very, very relevant issue that actually cuts across all sections, and I still feel that way. So. When I'm passionate enough about something, you will engage me. <laughs> you will get me to commit to something when I feel <laughs> this very strong passion. And I'm going to now tell a couple Ann Chumway uh, um, Cook stories. Yes, because it has to be, this is a, these are true stories. So she did start this joint balance and falls, geriatric section, and neurology section, SIG. And from the, from the level of trying to manage the sections, it was a disaster. We never could make it work out. And so it ended up that they decided to dissolve the jointness of the two management sides of it. And then neurology section said, oh, we'll just drop it. She did not like that. And I came to my first CSM as president of the neurology section. And she comes right up to me and says, puts her finger in my face. And, I, and she said, we need to have this here. And I'm like, okay, help me understand. And she did, because when she's passionate about something, you know it. Mm. Okay. My other end story is we were in Alabama. This is actually the first time I had a personal conversation with her. Of course, I knew her. She was a hero to me. And we're at the Taub... Um, the Taub Conference, and it was a, a 40 individuals invited to, to think about paradigm shift in neurorehabilitation. And there was a person giving a lecture, and Anne didn't agree with him. And she's sitting behind me, 
and she starts poking me in the shoulder and saying, say something, say something, because that is something with motor learning. Did you know Anne at this time? No. And, I, and she's poking me in the shoulder, and I look over my shoulder, and I'm like, me? You're Anne Shumway Cook. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it was, I was like, I was just like shocked. She was poking me, and it was her. And so we, we get through this discussion in the lecture, and we go out in the hall, and I'm like, hi, I've never met you. I'm Kathy Sullivan. And she's like, I know. And I'm like, but at that, that's when we became friends. Because because I poked her in the shoulder right. and said, speak up, speak up. By God, had I known you were going to speak up, I'd have duct taped you years ago, girl. <laughs> oh, but just kidding, just kidding. I know. Edit that out. <laughs> but, but, but Anne is definitely one of those people who gets get you going, gets you thinking, pokes you in the shoulder and says, makes hey, kid, what up. you doing? Make, what makes you speak up? I and believe I it. will always appreciate that Thanks. from you. And you always, you're one of those people that we don't always think the same, and that's why we help each other stretch. Exactly. But, I, yeah, so I think, and I think that that's critical. I, I do, do believe Jonathan Haidt's thing of you never grow by staying in your own little silo. That's mm -hmm. why I'm putting a pl plug in. I heard recently, I don't know if this is true or not, we can edit this out, that combined sections meeting is getting so large they're thinking about splitting it up, and I vote no. <laughs> Allow me a moment to explain why. I believe that cross-fertilization is critical to our mm -hmm. profession. Mm -hmm. It is critical, and we need to develop the skills to continue to have combined sections meeting with all the sections so there can be cross-fertilization, mm -hmm. so we do not stay in our little silos. It is critical to us as a profession that we stay together and move ahead so that we have joint programming and things like that. Whoever's listening. Well, I recall um, going to a lecture of yours at Combined Sections Meeting, and you were referring to all these um, other researchers around the world. And I think that was really important to me to, to not be so uh, USA-centric and to realize the value that other professionals um, other professionals, not just PTs, but other countries, therapists in other countries bring to the table. And um, I remember specifically you talking about an anti-injury device with fallers that was a piece of clothing that blew up. Were they like the uh, balloon pants? Yes. <laughs> and that you actually confessed that you had worn them mm -hmm. and um, had eliminated them as a possible uh, <laughs> treatment device because of the aesthetic of them, shall exactly. I say. Yes, and uh, I really remember that vividly laughing. And I thought, at that point, Dr. Shumwick Cook is really approachable if she's able to say things like that. That's because no woman will willingly pad their hips. <laughs> I and totally make them agree. bigger. It's like those <laughs> hip pads were developed by men. Sorry for the gender bias, but um, and no woman will willingly pad their hips. I don't care if it's to prevent hip fracture or not. So, mm -hmm. okay. Well, I heard a rumor that you were retired. So, what's your approach to retirement? Um, I am, in fact, partially retired, and mm -hmm. my approach to retirement is to say yes to all the things I feel passionately about and no to everything else. So there it is in a nutshell. So, so if I feel strongly about something, I will continue to do it. And when I stop feeling strongly about it, I will stop doing it and say no. So that's the joy of retirement to me, is that things are more under my control in terms of saying, so I, 
actually have a quote from Basho, a Japanese poet that I posted right on retirement that said, pass by that which you do not love. And I decided that was my affirmation in retirement. And so mm -hmm. I pass by that which I do not love. And if I love it, then I engage in it. And if I don't, I pass it by. So what's your passion right now? Um, I have multiple things that I'm passionate about. So um, the profession remains a passion for me in, in many different forms. And so I will remain engaged in the profession for um, a little while longer at least. I have other passions as well, obviously. My family, mm -hmm. I'm a grandmother now with grandchildren, and I'm a quilter, and I have a passion for that. I have a passion for comparative religious studies, and I'm doing a lot of that. And mm -hmm. so the nice thing about retirement is that it has allowed me to follow some of the other passions I have, So, and I'm enjoying that. When you came in this afternoon and we were talking about the, the uh, interview today, you pulled out several pages of uh, things notes. that you wanted, notes that you had, you had prepared for the interview. So I wanted to give you this opportunity to make sure that we had allowed you to address the things that you wanted to uh, let the therapist listening to this interview. I don't think so. I think that some of the changes, you asked me to contemplate the changes in our profession over the last 40 years, and there have been a lot. There have been a lot of changes, and some I absolutely agree with, and some actually I don't agree with so much, but things like um, the, the shift that I do agree with is the shift from prescription to autonomous practice. And so when I graduated from PT school, not only did mm -hmm. we have to have physician referral, that physician wrote a detailed prescription. Mm -hmm. You will do ultrasound mm -hmm. for this many mm -hmm. minutes at this, remember that? Yes. And you're gonna do exercise and you'll do um, quadriceps strengthening, you'll do 20 reps, and it was mm -hmm. very um, prescribed. And then we did finally go to physician referral, evaluate and treat as you see fit. And now we're moving to autonomous practice. And so that's been a significant change. There's also been a significant change in the way we reimburse and things like that. Mm -hmm. so, um, so no, I think that we've pretty much covered the, the things that I thought were fun to think about all the way from the mundane of shifts in uniform to um, <laughs> critical what I feel are very important factors such as um, where we draw our evidence for to justify our practice. So. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so and much. And I appreciate you taking time out from your very busy schedule, the CSM, to uh, join us and, and allow us to capture your thoughts for the future. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. That was really great. Wow, that was really great. I don't know how I ended up in this room, but I'm really glad I am. Even though I made you cry. Oh, you did. I teared oh up. God, it was beautiful. so uh, uh, amazing. There's something about dads, isn't there? There's something about dads, man. Yeah, and words of wisdom. So one question I didn't want to ask you on tape was related to gender, being a Woman. Woman scientist. Damn it, you should have answered it. Can I turn it back on? No, I don't know. I just. Oh. Woman scientist. And interestingly, one of your primary collaborator, collaborators was, back on, was yeah. also yeah. a woman scientist. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, what was that like? Because I remember walking in to my to the CMR, it's time for magnetic resonance imaging, when I was um, first year of my PhD. 97. 
And I walked into this building, and there, other than the secretary, the receptionist, there was one other woman in the whole building. And this is in 97. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, you know, and I had the, there was this German um, physicist who's actually a really great guy. But luckily I don't get sort of easily ruffled by things that some people do. But I remember I was sit- the the head coil broke down again. And he came in to fix it and, and he looks over at me and he said, Oh, the clearly the reason the coil has broken is because, you know, you you are so beautiful, he can't it can't <laughs> function. Something along those lines. And I was just without words. But anyway, so it's just but you're you know, that was two decades, you know, before that. What was that? I think that um, it actually has, goes, it's more than that. You know, I'm fortunate I was raised by the father I was. Even though he was very, he was much, much older than uh, my mother, but he had a, he raised me, he was a physician, and um, I went to PT school when it was a still very patriarchal kind of thing. There were you were an no only child? Okay. Four, do- four sisters. Oh, oh. There were five okay. of us. Okay. And I'm and not recording, I'm yeah. saving, uh-huh. so just to let you know. Um, one of the things my father said to me, when, when we were talking about just physicians in general, and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the awe with which society often yeah. holds still. the yeah. male physician in yeah. particular, mm-hmm. is he, I can't tell you how many times I heard this growing up. And you know, Doctors put on their pant legs, pants one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Actually, he said, doctors shit in the morning, just like everybody else. <laughs> and hearing that over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Well, and see, growing probably up, seeing your dad with flaws and regular. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my um, sense of awe mm-hmm. about um, mm-hmm. I'm not as good as you. I, I never got raised that way. And mm-hmm. so entering the medical field that is and continues to be or was male dominated mm-hmm. was never an issue for me. Um, I always voiced my opinion you whether do. I was a man or a woman. <laughs> and so it's pretty hard to intimidate me, um, though people have been successful in doing it. So um, the, the same is true in science. I think that. I'm fortunate that I've collaborated with some strong women, and Lou was a different kind of man. Like so him. he really, really was, and still um, is. He still is, yeah. But he was particularly unusual at that point. Dick Schmidt was like that too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. That they're 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 Randy gender Rudolph's blind. Like that too. They're they're gender yeah. um, blind. They mm-hmm. truly are. Lou is gender blind. Mm-hmm. It was back then, and so that helped. And then collaborating really with strong women, Marjorie, Faye, very mm-hmm. strong. Mm-hmm. Um, Marjorie Anderson was a critical influence too, not always in a good way for me. So, um, so that's I don't know mm-hmm. if that really answers your question, but I think well, but that was what I, I was also kind of getting at with um, you know the recipe for success to paradigm shift, and the, and your answer was phenomenal. And spot on about the ego and the fear and the attachment, uh-huh. but but a, a part of it is that what you just mentioned about being fearless. collaborative. Well, well collaborative. Yeah. But also no, being, being not, fearless too. Not no, being afraid to no. speak. I, I'm telling you that a part of being fearless 
is having somebody by your oh, side. Yeah, so oh, true. it is. The reality is you're much more willing to speak up if there's someone next to you that agrees, agrees with what with you're me. saying. Mm -hmm. And you just often need only one other person to say, like me, saying, speak up, speak up, speak mm -hmm. up, speak mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. I know what you're going to say, and I agree with it. And you need to speak up and say it. And mm -hmm. then you spoke up and said it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes fearless is not so much about the individual attribute. It's about having somebody next to you mm -hmm. that is supporting you in a way that allows you to speak out. So <coughs> it is. I, I have been very fortunate. That's partly why I don't want the lectureship named after me. You know, I partly, you know, I've been fortunate to collaborate. Mm -hmm. I am who I am now and have contributed what I've contributed. <coughs> it has much less to do with me individually, and I am not falsely humble. It has everything to do with who I've been fortunate enough to work with. But I do think there's another side to it, and that's being passionate well, about yeah. something that you know. But it can blind you, Kathy. Being passionate has its downside, girl. I, I know it does, but when you are dealing with something that, like if you saw that, well, you did see, that falls were fundamentally a huge risk for people who are elder. Mm -hmm. You weren't going to, like, step down on that. Because no. you know that that's, a, a, like, almost oh, you mean a neurologist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. not even just that, it, because you knew that people could be harmed yeah. because of that. Yeah. So well, sometimes you, the, you know, sometimes people don't understand that that passion is based on true observation of things that happen in a clinic or, or what the ultimate cost is to an individual yeah. if they fall. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but know? it's like Seriously? anything else. I, I read a um, quote. I love these famous quotes, but. Mm -hmm. um, it's like nothing's ever real till you actually experience it in your own life. Right. Mm -hmm. So no, proverbs aren't real until your life, mm -hmm. you live them in your life. And mm -hmm. so I saw just too many patients, particularly mm -hmm. neuro neurology patients, mm -hmm. falling. And to have this section drop the balance and fall sig was like, no, that's not happening. That is not happening. This is not a geriatric problem. This is a huge problem among our neurologic patients, and we are not addressing it. Even worse, there's no evidence we can make it better. Okay. Now, so and on, the, said, on this, I wasn't backing down on yeah. why the neurology section should reinstate its, because to do not to do so would suggest that falls isn't an issue in neurologic patients. Right. Oh my okay. God. So uh, when so we so what's the issue that's a sh we should be passionate about as a profession is if there's evidence that physical therapy is effective and can protect people and people are not getting it, I think that's worth being passionate about. Well, I think that it is. I mean, there, there are many issues for which we need to be passionate about, Kathy, and we cannot all, you and I have talked about this before, mm -hmm. we pick our battles. So This one's a battle I think no, fighting. It, and it is for you, and it probably is in terms of the profession, but we all have different battles. It's the same thing we always say, pick your battles. I have a finite amount of energy, and mm -hmm. I'm going to pick the things that I'm actually going to prioritize and fight for. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I don't agree with the point you're making, just that I'm not picking up the banner to carry it forward. And that, and that, and that I, so, I, I, and find I think but that's you reasonable. Pick, right, right. But, it, but every now and then, there'll be the people who will like in the false thing, say this is something that must be attended to 
and I will push this point until people understand right. why that's of value. But and, I um, don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that I expect everybody else to pick up that band. No, not at that immediate time. So that's all. That's yeah. all I'm saying.